there is a tremendous responsibility in stewarding the things which belong to the Lord. With regard to spiritual things, the church is called the pillar and support of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15. We uphold and support the wisdom and righteousness of God. Furthermore, Paul believed that as a messenger of the gospel, he had received a stewardship entrusted to him, 1 Corinthians 9.17. Furthermore, he told Timothy to guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. But God has given much to us that we are to care for. The people of God, the gospel of God, the witness of the righteousness of God. And we are to be faithful to him, understanding that all that we have been entrusted with does not belong to us. It all belongs to him. And it's really amazing when you think about it. The Bible actually says that we are God's fellow workers 1 Corinthians 3.9, we're fellow workers. We work alongside him, not so that we can receive honor and power and prestige and riches or blessing. That's not why we do ministry. But rather, this is all so that God receives glory and the fruitful harvest of righteousness. And yet there are those who engage in religious ministry, not for God, but for themselves. And yet scripture warns that all who serve themselves in ministry will be judged severely by the Lord. And with that, we would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. We'll wrap up Matthew 21 today. Matthew 21, the events of the gospel of Matthew chapter 21 take place in the middle of Passion Week, the week before Jesus goes to the cross. And at the beginning of this week, he rides in on a donkey, fulfilling messianic prophecy. And the next day, he drives out all the merchants who are in the temple, purging it of all the ungodly practices. And on that very same day, he curses a barren fig tree as a sign of judgment on apostate Israel. And when he re-enters the temple again to teach, he is confronted by the religious leaders of Israel, asking him to demonstrate his credentials, so to speak. They ask him, by what authority are you doing these things, and and who gave you this authority? And he responds by asking them if they can tell him about the origins of John the Baptist's ministry, his authority, a question they don't want to answer, because it forces them to admit that John's ministry was from heaven, and if John's ministry is from heaven, then his message is also from heaven, and what is his message? His message is that Jesus is the Christ. And that message must be believed. And yet in response to their ambivalence, Jesus shares with them a parable in Matthew 20, 28. He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. A man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, I should say, before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe 
And so this simple parable was designed to expose the religious leaders for what they really were, and that was spiritual frauds. And just like the second son in the story, they were made a big show about declaring their obedience to God, but in truth, they refused to obey him or to do his will. See, the sinners in the parable, they did God's will ultimately because they repented and believed after hearing the gospel. But the Pharisees only hardened their hearts, and sadly, it gets much worse for them. While they're still standing there in front of Jesus, he has something else to say to them. Matthew chapter 21, picking it up in verse 33. Listen to another parable, says the Lord Jesus. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Now, following the shorter parable, Jesus sets out to tell another parable, he says. Now, there's going to be a, a third one. We're going to see this in chapter 22, but for now, we're just looking at this other parable here at the end of chapter 21. And what is a parable? What is a parable? Well, it is a simple story used to illustrate a greater truth. It's very straightforward. It's a common fixture in rabbinic teaching, and Jesus employed the use of parables all the time. Now, the parable itself is pretty straightforward. When you read it, it's at face value a very simple story, as it's supposed to be. Very simply, it's a, a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, for them, the process of setting up a vineyard would have been a common occurrence in their day. His audience would have been very familiar with this practice. There were vineyards all over Israel. Generally, a wealthy landowner would plant a vineyard, so to speak, full of grape vines, and it's in a very expensive and time-consuming endeavor. To protect this vineyard, however, from animals and common thieves, he put a wall around it, and then he would have dug a wine press in it. This was done by either digging or hewning two pits or two basins, 
it would have been an upper basin and a, a lower basin. And in the upper basin, they would have deposited all the grapes. And then once those grapes were deposited in the upper basin, they would have servants that would walk and stomp on the grapes to get the juice out. And then there would be a channel coming out of the upper basin to go to the lower basin where all the the juice would flow out of the upper and go and gather in the lower basin. And that would be uh, the beginning of the fermentation process. In addition to all this, the landowner built a tower where he could set a watchman to guard over the vineyard. And once all the work was completed, the landowner took his vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went, it says, on a journey. Now, this would not have been uncommon. Lots of business owners do this. They hire laborers to cultivate a a crop whereby at the end of the season they would come and cash in the harvest and they would realize their profits. Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. Nothing earth-shattering here. It's standard operating procedure. The wealthy landowner doesn't feel the need to go and collect the produce on his own. He sends his own slaves who come bearing his authority and his instructions. But then something terrible happens. And this is where the parable sort of takes a a veer to a certain direction and it would have uh, got the attention of the hearers. Look at verse 35. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Now, for whatever reason, the vine growers have no interest in yielding to the landowner's wishes and they act wickedly toward the servants. Jesus notes they they took the servants, they seized them. They beat the first one. The Greek word used here refers to flogging or flaying. It's a nasty and savage act. They beat this one, and then Mark and Luke add in their recounting of this story that they sent him away empty-handed. So they they beat the tar out of him and then send him back to the master empty-handed. The second one, they killed in cold blood. The third, they stoned. Now, we don't know if that means that he was stoned to death or stoned within an inch of his life. We don't know. But at this point, the landowner is within his own rights to bring the authorities into the matter and prosecute the vine growers. But he doesn't do it. Look at verse 36. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. This is getting absurd, isn't it? He's just sending more and more slaves to go and try to get his harvest. Anybody in their right mind would have descended on the vineyard with an army of law enforcement, soldiers and things like that. They would have cleaned the place out, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, he opts to send one more delegate, his beloved son. Verse 37, but afterward he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. I want you to note here the forbearance and the the patience of the owner. His hope is that the vine growers will see the son, the owner's son, coming to them and will sort of relent and walk it back here and treat him respectfully and make good on delivering the harvest. That's his hope. If I send my son, the slaves, okay, I can understand, maybe they don't respect the slaves, but they will respect my son. Verse 38, 39. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now we see the motive of the vine growers. They are greedy. 
They want it all for themselves. Even though the vineyard is not theirs, and even though they are obligated to pay the landowner what is owed to him, somehow they get the twisted idea in their heads that they can plot and kill the son, and that if they kill the son, somehow, in the absurdity of their mind, they can seize his inheritance and make themselves wealthy. If we kill the son of the landowner, and there's no one else left to come and collect, the vineyard will become ours. Now, you think about this. This is it's nuts, right? That's not how this works, but that's what they think. And so when they see him coming to them, they seize him, they throw him out of the vineyard, and they kill him. It's a shocking turn of events. Now, at this point of the story here, Jesus then turns to the religious leaders who are standing around him. The crowd is also around, and he invites them to respond. Verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? This isn't a trick question. Anyone with any sense of justice knows the right answer. Verse 41, and they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Frankly, they give a good answer. That's what I would want to do, right? I would assume the same thing for you. The first thing the owner should do is bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's how they phrase it. It's a very poetic way of articulating a very serious punishment. It's almost as if to say their punishment should match their character. Bring those wretches to a wretched end. They've acted wretchedly. But then they call for a second step. Don't just punish those guys. They say, and then rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So their solution is this. Pulverize the bad workers and hire good ones. Now, I suspect, and maybe you do too, that the leaders were starting to catch on to some symbolism here. They know that the parable is not about grapes and a vine. That's not what this is about, and they know that. They're smart. They know how these things work. They know it's something spiritual. There's something bigger to this parable here. See, the imagery of the vineyard was a well-known metaphor for Israel. In fact, the setup for the parable itself is taken directly from the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is quoting from a passage of the Old Testament. And the religious leaders of Israel, they would have known that Jesus was talking about Israel. But this metaphor of planting a vineyard is applied to Israel as far back as Psalm 80. In fact, let me just read a portion of Psalm 80 to you. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11, talking about the Lord. The psalmist says, You removed a vine from Egypt... And drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. And the mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs, and sending out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. And so the imagery here that's being used by the psalmist a thousand years before Christ is God rescuing Israel out of Egypt under the ministry of Moses. That's what we're talking about here. And it's almost as if they're this struggling vine in Egypt that can't seem to get take root and, and grow very well. So he, he takes the, 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 this vine out of Egypt and transplants it, uproots it, and carries them all the way to the promised land, and that's where he plants this new vine. 
But things do not go the way that you might expect. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is prophesying at a time when Israel had begun their slide into apostasy. And Judah isn't faring much better, by the way. But he seizes on this metaphor of this vineyard, Israel as a vineyard, in order to warn the nation about God's displeasure with them. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing now for my well-beloved. A song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewn out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Oh, now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress, a powerful, sobering message to the people of Israel and Judah. Again, God planted Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, and he he plants them, and he's expecting fruitfulness. He gets them out of Egypt and says, okay, now I'm going to put them in good soil. Now they can flourish. I've given them their own land. They're their own people. They can grow and produce the fruit of righteousness. But all he gets in from them is, is wickedness, bloodshed. And so in turn, he promises bloodshed. And now the leaders of Israel are standing in front of Jesus. Now they have no doubt about this parabolic prophecy. Furthermore, when Jesus begins his own parable, he's quoting directly from this passage from Isaiah chapter 5. But in his parable, it takes a different turn. In Jesus' parable, he identifies the vine growers as the cause of the wickedness. And what does his parable mean in light of Isaiah 5? Go back to Matthew 21 here. I want to keep this parable. In working through Jesus' parable, many Bible interpreters, they have discerned the different symbols in the parable. The landowner, you can imagine, is God. And the vineyard, of, as we've been saying, is Israel. But more specifically, it's the people of God by faith. It is God's people by faith. Some have interpreted even the tower that's overlooking the vineyard. Some have said that that's the temple. That very well could be. Who are the slaves? Well, the slaves are the prophets of God who've been sent to the, to the people of God to call for obedience and for fruitfulness. And who are the vine growers? Well, they are the sinful leaders of Israel. Now, as for the sun, 
I don't think that Jesus' opponents knew who that represented, at least not yet. Why do I think that? Well, because they don't even see his answer coming at all. Because they're answering, it's almost like they disregard the fact that the son's even anything at all. They just see the injustice and they try to respond in kind. But the right answer here, they answer the question, the ethical question correctly. Bring those wretches to a wretched end. Judge them fiercely and then rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. And if anyone in the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel, if anyone in this group has gotten this far in the interpretation, they would have been thinking this way. Rent out the vineyard to us. That's where they're going with this. Bring those wretches to a wretched end, but, but give us the vineyard. We're the good ones. We'll bring you the fruit in the season. We'll give you what you're asking for. But just like that, Jesus drops a bomb on them that's going to send them reeling. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, at first glance, you're thinking, what does it have to do with anything? But here's what he does. He, he first says to this, and he says this to them many, many times throughout the course of his interchanges with them, did you never read in the scriptures? It's a rebuke. It's a rebuke against those who knew the scriptures better than anybody in Israel. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Now, this is a direct quote in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a direct quote from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Many of our Bibles are translated from the Hebrew, but this is a quote from the Greek translation, the Septuagint. Now, originally, Psalm 118 was written as a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago. We did the entire psalm in one, in one sermon here. This psalm is part of a collection of psalms called the Hallel, which would have been recited frequently throughout the Passover week. And so this would have been on a, a refrain over and over and over again. They all knew it. They had all read this hundreds of times before. I mean, this is one of those, those key texts that when you're studying in rabbinic school, you're just reading over and over and over again. They knew this psalm backwards and forwards. And it was from this psalm that the crowds were chanting on the day that Jesus comes into the city on the back of a donkey. The crowd is shouting this refrain, Hosanna, save now, save now, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Over and over and over again, the crowds are, are cheering and chanting this chorus. And that chorus that they're chanting over and over again is from Psalm 118. It's from verses 25 and 26, just a couple of verses away from the passage that Jesus is quoting here. And so while the crowds are cheering this at the arrival of Jesus, the religious leaders are fuming. They're getting angry the more they hear this psalm over and over again. Why? Well, Luke records in his gospel, chapter 19, verse 39, the Sanhedrin even tells Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Get them to stop saying these things. Get them to stop calling you son of David. They shouldn't be hailing you as the one who comes, the prophetic Messiah. They shouldn't be calling you Messiah. Rebuke your disciples. And frankly, I have no doubt that for the last couple of days, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, they had been rereading this Psalm 118 over and over and over again. 
and having meetings about it and talking about it late into the night. Trying to understand why the people are saying this about Jesus. What are we missing here? I have no doubt they would have been reading this over and over and over again. Psalm 118 would have been burned onto their eyeballs after staring at it so much. Why did Jesus quote this verse? Remember here, in the context of where we are, they don't yet know the identity of the son in the parable. They don't. It's very clear from the context. They don't know who that is yet. The son whom the vine growers seize and kill and throw out of the vineyard. Who is this rejected son? Who is this? Jesus answers. He is the stone which the builders rejected who has become the chief cornerstone. What Jesus is saying is this. The rejected son and the rejected stone are the same person. Now their minds are beginning to to race a little bit. Who is the son that the parable talks about who was killed? Who is the stone who becomes the chief cornerstone? Why does this sound so familiar? Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Okay, we've got that. Verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad at it. They're not rejoicing. The crowds are. What's going on? Verse 25. O Lord, do save. Hosanna, Hosanna. O Lord, we beseech you, send prosperity. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the crowd is cheering as Jesus enters the city. They're praising him and they're declaring all the truths of this psalm. They're calling him son of David. They're calling him the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling him the stone. He's the rejected stone. He's the rejected son. Now they're starting to realize, well, who does this make us? Verse 43. Jesus says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. They are the wretched vine growers. And it finally hits them. Their forefathers killed the prophets. Jesus talks about that in chapter 23. He, he accuses them of that very same thing. We're going to see that in a couple weeks here. So the, pro, they were, the forefathers killed the prophets, and they themselves, they were going to be the ones that would kill the son. According to tradition, Isaiah was sawn in two. According to Scripture, Jeremiah was beaten. Zechariah was stoned. Uriah and others were killed. See, faithless Israel had been fulfilling this prophecy for centuries. And now, the sun had come to the vineyard to collect the harvest of righteousness for the owner, God. But the wicked vine growers, they intend to arrest him, bring him outside of the vineyard to the hill at Golgotha, and kill him. But what would become of those who would kill this son? Well, guess what? The chief priests and the Pharisees, they have the answer. They gave the answer prophetically, if you will. God would bring those wretches to a wretched end. Verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. 
In line with their own prescription, Jesus affirms that the kingdom of God, the rule and realm of salvation, the faith of Abraham, will be taken away from them and given to another people. What people? What people? Some have thought he's referring to the Gentiles. Others think he's talking about the church. But the truth is is that it's really most likely both here. Because the church, we know, is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. That's the mystery that's been revealed throughout the New Testament. But even here, Romans eleven twelve says that Israel's transgression will be riches for the Gentiles. In that, the Gentile nations would be grafted into the promise by faith. And yet, there were faithful Jews who did not turn away from the Lord, but were fruitful. In fact, the apostles were all Jews. And the church is comprised, the kingdom of God is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. But it's another people, another people that is not the religious leaders of Israel, a different people would inherit this kingdom of God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament toward the end. 1 Peter chapter 2. Written several decades after Jesus' parable, Peter understood his meaning. See, the people of God are not those who are born into it by the flesh. Has nothing to do with lineage. Has nothing to do with heritage. The people of God become so by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Peter, knowing this, exhorts these people. 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's who we are, beloved. We are this royal priesthood, this chosen people, this holy nation. We are a people of God's own possession, as Titus says, who are zealous for good deeds. 
See, Christ is the cornerstone, the chief stone, the central stone, the foundation stone of God's household. And we, the Bible says, were like living stones added and built up in God's household. And we, as the living stones that are built, we we look to Christ as our foundation, as our rock, as our redeemer. He is precious, not only in the sight of God, he is precious in our sight. We look to Christ and we are in awe. Yet those who stumble over him and reject him and despise him, Jesus says, he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. In other words, all who reject Christ as the cornerstone will eventually be pulverized by him. There is judgment coming for those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we know the message of the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, the Holy One of God, the one who has come in the name of the Lord, we know that He did come and lived a life perfectly righteous, a spotless lamb. And He gave up His own life As a sacrifice, dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And on his cross, he shed his blood. Again, language of atonement here. A sacrificial, spotless lamb giving his life as payment for our sins. So when he died, the penalty for our sins died with him. And all who believe in him, who trust in him, They will receive the benefit of grace and salvation. And as he died and was buried in the ground, he rose again the third day to bring us new life, to impart to us this eternal life by faith. This is the the gospel message of our salvation. And all who hear this message and believe this message, you then are born again to a living hope, regenerated, given new life in Christ. You have forgiveness for your sins. And your wretched life, you will not be brought to a wretched end. Your wretchedness will be forgiven by the Holy One. And so when you die and go to heaven, you will be, receive the, the crown of righteousness. Not because we've earned it. None of us have earned anything. We're slaves of God. Yet we will receive it by faith. Why? Well, because we've received mercy. Isn't that what the Bible says? We, we were not a people, but now we are a people. We did not receive mercy before, but now we have. We've received that which we didn't earn, nor do we deserve. Because God, the landowner, is gracious. He could have wiped everything out and started over again. And said, that's it. No more sin, I'm done. But he sent his son. And even though the son was killed and thrown out of the vineyard, the son rose the third day to bring life to all who would believe in him. How do the religious leaders respond to this? Because they hear the parable. They're in the crowd. What do they do? Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, 
I love how they fulfill the parable as they just react, don't they? As they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Whereas before, they feared the people because they regarded John the Baptist to be a prophet. Now, the people regard Jesus to be a prophet. But the Sanhedrin can't touch him, at least not yet. But within a matter of a couple of days, this parable would soon become fulfilled prophecy. Jesus would be arrested, tried, scourged, led out of the city, and killed. But on the third day, he would rise again. Because, or I should say, beware, beware of stumbling over the gospel. It leads only to ruin. But blessed are those who build their life and build their faith on the rock of our salvation. You will not be disappointed. You will not be condemned. You will not be brought to a wretched end if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that we have in Christ. We thank you that we are a people who have received mercy. Lord, nothing that we have that is good has been given to us because we deserve it. Even as I pondered this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that even ministry is a mercy. The fact that we exist as a church is a mercy. The fact that we are entrusted with a, a ministry of service and leadership and love and care for one another, the fact that we have a fellowship of the beloved here is all mercy. Nothing that we have is deserved. It is all because of your loving kindness to us. And yet that which we do deserve, punishment for our sins, because of Christ we don't receive that. Because of Christ, we have life, we have forgiveness, we have restoration, we have reconciliation, and we have joy of the Lord. Lord, we are blessed to have you. And Lord, we are your people by faith. We are yours, and so we pray earnestly that you would help us to labor hard in this vineyard, to labor hard in this harvest field. Lord, the workers are few, the harvest is plentiful, but help us, O Lord, not to demonstrate malice and envy and spite toward one another as Peter warns, but to to strive together in the faith of the gospel, to love one another, to confess when we're wrong, to be patient when we are wronged, to strive toward faithfulness and fruitfulness because we know that there's a day coming when you will return and you will say, where is the fruit of righteousness that I was promised? And Lord, we want to deliver. We want to deliver on that day and say, oh Lord, everything we have belongs to you. Receive everything that you deserve, oh Lord God. All our praise all our worship, all our ministry, all our gifts and service and love, everything we have is for you because you are the owner of this vineyard and you are wonderful. We bless your name today.
And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.